1: All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for the show. And with me today is my brother in Christ, uh Erwin Lutzer. Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for joining me again on Equipping You and Grace. Can can you catch us up on your life, marriage, ministry, and any ministry well, projects you've been working on?
2: Thank you, Dave, for asking. I'm actually 81 years old. And I always say that the good thing about old age is it doesn't last very long. So uh, what I want to do is to invest the rest of my life trying to think through issues of the culture, knowing how to respond. And of course, that's why I've written the book that we're going to be talking about. My wife continues to support me spiritually in every way, physically. I'm so fortunate that I have a wife. I have three daughters, all of whom married Christian men, eight grandchildren. Mm. So Dave, you can imagine that we often are very, very busy as we travel around and uh, try to connect with them. But my great burden also is to pray for them. I prayed for one of our grandchildren today. I choose a different one every day of the week. And uh, we're living in a culture where Parents oftentimes are not raising their children. The culture is, mm. thanks to smartphones and everything else. And uh, we need to pray as never before.
1: Mm. That's really good, brother. Well, we're going to talk today, guys, about Dr. Lutzer's new book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. If you're watching the video, uh, here is the here's the book. It's really, really helpful. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this book why you wrote it you just were telling us a little bit about it you can tell us a little more and how you hope it'll be received brother
2: thanks dave once again and i'm glad to know you told me earlier that you actually read the book which is wonderful and you'll be able to comment on that but what i did is i looked at the pressure points where christianity has to interact with a culture And that actually became the basis of the book, such as cultural demonization, where you can't get a job anymore based on your expertise, but whether or not you have loud enthusiasm for the cultural orthodoxies, multiple pronouns, you have to bow, as it were, before the the rainbow flag. So I discuss that. Then I talk about how our culture has idolized the self, So that we become our own gods and the implications. And then, of course, I also tread two chapters in the matter of race diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I show how these things are actually working against us in the culture and in the church rather than helpful. Mm. And, uh, you know, questions like this. What about uh, collective guilt and questions regarding the land? We stole the land from the American Indians, we are told. How do we relate to all these criticisms? And then, of course, issues regarding uh, such things as propaganda, the education of our children, compromises within the church, the global reset, and so forth.
1: Yeah, you cover a lot of ground in this book. And it as i was reading all of it i i was just thinking you you keep coming back to this theme of truth with compassion and i think that as to me i think that was the you're, you're trying to address all these issues with truth and compassion truth and love not not to beat anybody over the head but to help them understand hey this is the truth and we're supposed to love people as christians And so how does that how do we work that out in in the various issues? And I I just saw you again and again take us back to that, emphasizing, you know, love for the truth and love for people. Am, Am I tracking with you on that?
2: I really am. And, you know, Dave, in today's culture, we have to let this generation know that love and truth are not enemies. They need to be held together. So what you often have is love is misused to justify what God condemns, and the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't stop loving. They just started to love the wrong things, lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, lovers of money. So, not all love is of God, and so we need to know, herein is love that you keep my commandments so we need to know that love has to be defined so we cannot compromise lifestyle or doctrine on the basis of love and think we've done it correctly Mm. on the other hand you and i have all met people who are into truth Mm. they really love truth Mm. and there seems very little love and compassion so to hold those intention is quite a challenge
1: but that's exactly what God is calling us to do. Yeah, the Bible not only is concerned with our, the message and being faithful to it and scripture, but the presentation of it. There's a, there's a lot of verses on both of those. So that's really, really good. Well, we've been talking a lot about the doctrine of scripture on here. And, you know, your book does address that. You want us to be faithful. So how does a good understanding of the doctrine of scripture help us in in the midst of a collapsing culture?
2: Well, one of the things that I point out in the book is that it is a challenge that the church faces. Are we going to interpret the Bible through the lens of culture, in which case we're going to be tempted to make compromises, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: or are we going to critique the culture based on the Bible? Mm. So, you know, we can talk until we're blue in the face as the saying goes about the authority of scripture. Mm -hmm. We can talk about that, but then when it comes to real life, the scripture often is ignored and we slide into Mm -hmm. trying to make it compatible with the culture, Mm -hmm. giving the culture whatever the culture is asking. Mm -hmm. So as a church, we have to hold to the integrity of scripture, but at the same time, we need to be willing to apply it and not simply sign a doctrinal statement and then go ahead and do whatever we like and teach whatever we like.
1: Mm. That's, a, that's a really powerful point that you just made, um, because I, I think that's exactly what we're seeing today in, in the church. As you have people that will sign a doctrinal confession, but then they're like, well... Where's the practice? I mean, Gallup just came out with a great great survey. I don't know. Have you seen that? um, it was uh earlier this in July, and the myth and fairy tale option as it came to the Bible. it just shows that people can say the Bible is sufficient for our faith, but then where is our practice? You know, and we're not questioning anybody's motives or anything like that. We're just saying you know we we look at those things where somebody could sign a confession and then where's the practice, you know so I think it's a I think what you just said is a really powerful point. Any thoughts on that, sir?
2: Yeah, well, you know and and this also applies to the culture regarding our constitution. China actually has a very good constitution. It's a constitution that uh, guarantees equal rights. It's quite a good constitution. The problem with it is it's ignored and you and I know what that does, and that's exactly the kind of situation that we often encounter in the church. So, the application of Scripture. What I try to do in the book, No Reason to Hide, is to help Christians to think through issues, but every chapter also ends with a hero. I want individuals to know that we might not be able to change the whole culture But we need to be faithful wherever God has planted us. And I give illustrations of that in the book, Mm. because uh, the question is, will we be faithful or will we learn to live by lies? What is exactly the thing that the culture wants us to do?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you demonstrate that. I I really appreciate in the book how you're demonstrating that through examples and use of lots of scripture you know biblical worldview analysis and uh you you do an excellent job in the book so i think readers will be be pleased because you show the the arguments and how they don't cohere with a biblical worldview but then you call us as we just talked about to to love the people that you know stand opposed to the biblical worldview not just to you know beat them over the head with the bible or club them but to love them with the truth and With the love of Christ. So, really good. Well, why should we as Christians not be ashamed of having a bias towards biblical values in an intolerant culture?
2: Well, you know, we're told that we should not judge anyone. We're told that we should not discriminate. That, of course, is nonsense. As I point out in the book, everybody discriminates. Even the radical left, they discriminate as to where they go to church or don't go to church. Mm. They discriminate if they're going to hire a babysitter. So discrimination is something that everyone does, and we're accused of it as if it's some kind of vice. As a matter of fact, one of the chapters in my book actually has the nerve to say it's a heading within a chapter, the blessing Of discrimination. So, the point to be made is that we need to be able to stand for Christian values, and we need to be willing to do that and to take any of the consequences, any of the criticisms as a badge of honor. Hmm. For example, in the book, I give an illustration of a dentist, a friend of mine, who went through these diversity studies online in order to keep his license. At the end, he was asked the question or he was given the opportunity to ask a question and he's the only one who asked a question. Hmm. He said, I don't expect my Muslim friends to think that it's a good idea that I eat pork. He said, I have Muslim clients. I don't expect them to affirm my desire to eat pork. He said, I don't expect my Muslim patients, yes, Muslim patients regarding pork, he said, even I have LGBTQ patients. Hmm. And he said, I don't expect them to affirm my biblical values. So why do I have to affirm their values? Hmm. And the answer basically was this, you had better, or there could be legal repercussions. Mm. now what am i saying there dave what i'm trying to help people to understand is this we must be willing to hold our christian values and be proud of it not in a wrong sense of course Mm. but to recognize that that is something we are called to do we cannot give the culture what the culture wants
1: Yeah, we and, and I think this is going to become really, really uh, clear in the in the next question. But before I I'll preface it by saying this, for those who are listening and watching, I've become very concerned about what is happening uh, to our kids. I have I'm in contact with all sorts of teachers all across the, the United States, and I used to be a substitute teacher in Idaho, and um, there was a kid that came and he was. He was a, He was a boy one day and then he's uh, he was on the autism scale and then the next day he he um, was a, a, a girl. And we' our kids are facing parents are facing these types of issues. And you talk about you talk about that in in the book. So what advice do you have for parents seeking to raise their children with biblical values in a collapsing culture? You know, whether that's putting them in a Christian school or a homeschool or, you know, something like that. Well, first
2: of all, Dave, one of the reasons I wrote that chapter in the book, I think it is entitled, Will Our Children Be Educated by the Enemy? But also a chapter on the gender neutral society. One of the goals I had in mind is to help parents to think through what they should say to a child if he comes home from school and says, you know, I think I'm trans. Now, the reason that children are saying that is because we have a contagion. This is spreading throughout the culture. That if you're dealing with issues regarding guilt, self identity, and what teenager has not had struggles as to who they are? Mm. When we were growing up, we all looked into the mirror and wondered where God was when we were put together. So if a child is struggling with where he is emotionally, oh, you must be trans. No, you're not trans. As a matter of fact, you can't be a boy at home and a girl at school. That is insanity you know, in the book, I point out that in George Orwell's um, novel, a man by the name of Winston was taken to a room, and he was told that two plus two equaled five. Actually, the rest of the story is that two plus two equals five, sometimes it equals three, sometimes it equals both. Hmm. Now, I've often thought about that, Dave, what was the purpose of that? Did they actually think that he'd end up believing that two plus two was five? Probably not. Mm. The purpose was to make him comfortable to live by lies. And by the way, I quote Voltaire, who said that he who makes you believe absurdities mm. can also get you to uh commit atrocities. Mm. But that by the side, so what the culture is doing is it's teaching us to live by lies mm. so that a boy can be birded home and he gets to school and he says, today I'm Bertha, which is total nonsense biologically and in every other way. And one of the things I point out is that self-perception is often not a reliable guide as to who we are. Mm. And you know, you can go into a psych ward and you can meet somebody who says, I am Napoleon, and he actually believes that he is Napoleon. Mm. But that doesn't make him Napoleon. Mm. So one of the things that is being taught today is this. If you don't use the right pronoun, you think that you know who I am better than I know myself. Mm. And my answer is, yes, indeed, I know you better than you know yourself. If you think you were born a boy, but you can become a girl, I can assure you, you are very confused. Mm-hmm. And um, recently, you know, I wrote, I read a book actually on the kind of surgery that is done when you have transgender surgery, and it is absolutely horrible mm-hmm. and is destroying young people. Mm-hmm. And what we have to do is to help them to work through that confusion. And even if there is no alignment supposedly between who they are inside versus their bodies, we have to help them that it's much better to have that feeling that things aren't aligned than to go into surgery. Hmm. You know, one of the chapters I have in the book is on how language is used in propaganda. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can get to that. I think that you were interested in that, in the questions that you asked earlier. And uh, you have such things as gender affirming care. Mm-hmm. That's code for the mutilization of children's bodies. Mm-hmm. And once that mutilation has happened, who are you going to marry? You can't become a biological parent after you've gone through all these surgeries. It is absolutely horrible. Mm. Now, another issue I discuss in the book is whether or not we should call people by the pronouns that they prefer. Mm. And I say that we can call them by whatever name they want because names aren't gendered, but pronouns are. So if you say I'm Bert but today my pronouns is she and her the answer is no Bert I'm going to call you by he and him I'm not doing you a favor by playing this game so we need to be able to take a stand you know names aren't gendered but pronouns are and we cannot fall for that within this world so In a practical way, of course, if your kid comes home and says, I think I'm trans, listen to him or her. Children need to be listened to. Help them to think through where they are at and give them an explanation and give them hope that they don't have to submit to this terrible cultural current. Mm.
1: I think one of the things that's really good. One of the things that really stood out that was really really powerful. You use the you discuss Hitler and how he was going after the the children and he said that you could have the you know you could have their body to raise them, but Hitler was going to have their soul. And I was like, wow, that that was really a really a powerful uh, illustration. My wife and I were talking about that last night. And it's so so true. We're we're. I think that's that's at the heart of what we're seeing today uh, with the agenda being pushed, especially towards our kids.
2: Well, yeah, and uh, you know, if you read, I think the third chapter in my book where I talk about the rise of the self and believing in the illusion that we are God, that's where you have Karl Marx and Freud married. I got that from Carl Truman, and so sex has become politicized, and the belief is that parents are oppressors, and therefore it is not right that they raise the child. The sexual training of a child is too important to leave to parents, and so the school has taken over that, and of course I give in the book an example of one of the books that I'm sure is used nationwide in various places for, uh, what is it, uh, what do I say there, from 10 years old to 16 years old, something like that. It discusses every sexual perversion illustrated. The intention is to destroy the natural um the natural conscience of a child and the child goes to school and he knows that this is wrong but he's told that it's right and so he has to violate his conscience as a result he feels guilty he feels very confused he goes home and he may continue with that confusion and what we need to do is to see that one of the reasons why kids are committing suicide is because of this sense of guilt, emptiness, and helplessness. And when we throw them to the wolves, so to speak, that's what we can expect, where there's no clarity, where biblical morality and ethics is considered to be totally oppressive and wrong. And so the school comes along and it educates them. So we have to be willing to instruct our parents and to help them think through what is happening.
1: Yeah, that's really, really good. You know, we, we saw Roe versus Wade uh, overturn, and now that's going back to matters, going back to the states to decide. And we've seen the Respect for Marriage Act that's you know passed the House and now in the Senate that aims to legalize the Obergefell decision. How how should Christians today speak about marriage between one man and one woman and other matters of biblical ethics and morality? and sexuality in our day
2: well of course what we have to do is to hold to the definition of marriage which is given in the bible namely a man and a woman coming together in a covenant covenant relationship until death do them part that is so critical now in the chapter where i deal with the whole issue of propaganda I point out that when you have things like the Equality Act or the Respect for Marriage Act, what we really have is a misuse of words. We talk about marriage equality. Well, we're making two things equal, which are not equal at all. Two men involved in a sexual relationship is not a marriage. And yet we've allowed that to become a marriage under wanting to be known as those who have equality in marriage. Mm. And it's not equality. And so you cannot have, under the guise of equality, everything that you want to be equal. The Bible does not equal those two things, thank you very much. So we as Christians must understand that. Mm. Another word that is often misused is the word justice. I point out how that the word justice is a perfectly good biblical word used many, many times in scripture. But today you have environmental justice, which means the whole Green New Deal. You have such things as marriage justice that we've talked about, same-sex marriage. You have, um, you know, all kinds of different uses of the word justice which should not be used because that is not justice. One of the most important verses that I quote in scripture regarding justice is in Isaiah chapter 59, where it says, justice is turned away and righteousness stands afar off because truth has stumbled in the public square. And when you don't have biblical truth, you don't have true justice, people can say whatever they wish oh Mm -hmm. by the way you also have economic justice which is code for socialism so you can use the word justice however you wish once you are cut off from biblical truth Mm -hmm. so we need to think this through we need to stand for what the bible stands for and let
1: the chips fall amen brother amen really good You've you've mentioned propaganda and truth and standing for truth. Um, You know, uh, a few years ago we saw, we heard, we learned the word "post-truth" from the Oxford Dictionary. And uh, so, how how important is it that we're crystal clear in our language from God's Word in this post-truth culture that wants to twist and pervert the meaning of words?
2: Well, you know that in the book on prop, uh, the chapter on propaganda, I say they use the same words but they have a different dictionary. I've already talked about gender affirming surgery, which is basically the mutilation of the body. But you also have things such as reproductive care. Reproductive care means the right of a woman to kill her pre-born infant. But nobody says that out loud, it's healthcare decisions. So what we must do is to peel back the label. I give the illustration of how at the Moody Church, there was some Tylenol back in the 80s, and in it someone put cyanide, and uh, six people died because they bought that. The label said Tylenol, but the contents was cyanide. In the very same way, we need to teach this generation to peel back the labels so that they can understand what is happening. Mm. As far as our young people are concerned, it's so critical for them to realize that information is not wisdom. Let me give you another example from the chapter that you've referenced. Mm. One of our universities, and this is true of many of them, have speech codes and they say, you know, you can't use the word freshman, you can't use the word addict, you can't use the word victim uh, you can't use the word salesman. And then one of the speech codes says this, if you have a barbershop in the area, don't say that they take in walk-ins because you might offend those who can't walk. after all, there are those who are on a wheelchair, right? Now we need to think through carefully what is happening. Is that intended to elevate the conversation? Absolutely not. It's intended to silence the conversation Mm. because you have no idea what is appropriate and what isn't. When you go into a restroom uh, or a restaurant, I should say, can you still ask for a menu? Uh, Or should you also ask for a woman you, you know, can you use manhole cover? Uh, You know, master bedroom is now, to be deleted from our discussions. All right, but can you still say that somebody mastered a subject? Nobody knows. And that's the whole point. We become inarticulate. We we fear saying a straightforward sentence. And what we can say yesterday, we can't say today. So parents need to know this. And then what do students do? Well, they need to run into a safe place if they hear something that offends them so that they can look, lick the wounds of their unappreciated victimhood. Mm. So that's where we are at. The intention of speech codes is to so narrow the realm of thought so that um, in the end, you won't even be able to object to anything because there'll be no, no vocabulary for it. Mm. So it's to create a tunnel so that all the students end up with conformity with the same ideas and self-censor themselves if they say something that is out of the approved, the
1: approved lists of words. It makes me think that, I mean, even more, like why at this point, you know, why even have dictionaries? Because dictionaries have meanings. And so how can you even have meaning if we've, if we deny, um, you know, the, the meaning and the purpose of of the the definition of the word. So we're just going to change the meaning of all the words so that they mean whatever they think that they mean. and And that just makes me think that, you know, why even have a dictionary? So.
2: Well, you know, like George Orwell says, you know, in that state of totalitarianism, slavery is freedom. And he gives other illustrations of it ignorance is strength so what you do is you you talk about strength but really what you mean is ignorance and uh, that's the way in which propaganda works and we have to help our young people to discern all that
1: yeah for sure you know how important is it that we learn from history in a time when many people want to revise history to you know suit their own agenda
2: It's very important that we learn from history. And when it comes to American history, it should be taught both the good and the bad. The objection that we have to the way in which it's taught today is all of America's ills are emphasized and um, any good that there is in America is trashed. So uh, remember this, people, many of our elites want us to hate America. In my book, I discuss the issue, for example, of whether or not uh, the land was stolen from the Indians, and people who read the book can read about that. But the point that I want to make is this. Whatever dirt we can throw on American history, that is thrown. It's as if America invented slavery. Slavery was absolutely horrible. No justification at all. But there are still 40 million slaves in the world and we must keep that in mind. Uh, And slavery is as old as Abraham, you know, going back, it's not as if America invented slavery, most assuredly. Now, all that to say, let's teach the history of America, but let's also teach its positive aspects. We have a constitution, unfortunately, that is not being followed today, but we have a constitution that's supposed to hold us together we are in a state in which we have these freedoms Mm. not absolute freedom but freedom within certain boundaries we have freedom of religion for example and uh, that's a wonderful asset now that's being challenged in many many different ways so what we need to do is to have a balanced view of history and if you want to judge a country by its history Find a country that hasn't fought wars. Find a country that hasn't done atrocities. Mm. You know, it was um, the great historian Toynbee who was quoted as saying, blessed is the nation that has no history, for history is a record of war. So let's put America in perspective and recognize how fortunate we are to be in this country.
1: Mm. That's really good. You know, uh, we're seeing the rise of, quote-unquote, progressive Christianity in our day. How should biblically rooted and orthodox Christians speak to this movement?
2: I have a chapter entitled, Will We Compromise With a Christian Left? In it, I tell the story, a true story about a church that went from being a Bible church, it was integrated... But they were giving thanks to God. They were worshiping together, bearing one another's burdens. And then when George Floyd was killed, everything changed. From now on, they were being divided in accordance with their skin color and how this fragmented the church. So the church today is being fragmented politically, racially, and we are forgetting that we are one body in Jesus Christ, worshiping together. Rather, people are being categorized into certain uh, categories and we're being divided. Critical race theory, as I point out in the book, actually, of course, it was based on Marxism, the fact that you have oppressed and oppressors. Today, it's all designated by skin color. But critical race theory keeps tearing apart what Jesus Christ died to bring together. Mm. Colossians 3.11, it says, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, Scythian, barbarian, of all things. That didn't mean that Greeks stopped being Greeks. And uh, you also have, of course, Jews continuing to be Jews, Scythians, you know, and all that they continue with their ethnicity, but there is a transcendent unity that binds us together in Christ. And many churches have lost sight of that, and they've divided. And of course, I show how love is often used to also accept the LGBTQ agenda, because we think that God is as inclusive as we are. So these are the kinds of concessions that are being made to the Christian
1: left. Yeah, that's really good. Really good. You know, we we talked before and probably one of the chapters that really was like, wow, um, my wife is very familiar and talks about the the global reset. She's done a lot of research on this, but your chapter there on that was really good. How important is it for Christians to understand what's happening out there with this global reset and uh, how should we speak out about it? Well,
2: you know, Klaus Schwab, whose book I quote repeatedly in that chapter, said that COVID has given us an opportunity uh, to make sure that we have a global reset and that includes such things as the Green New Deal, which is intended to bring equity to all the countries of the world. Now, people must understand something. Just like white supremacy is blamed for everything, and if you are white and you're successful, you can take no credit for it because it's the color of your skin, you're a uh, person of privilege. And you got that wealth on the backs of others. That's Marx's premise. Now, let's take that and expand it. It is believed that the reason that America is the most wealthy country in the world is we became rich on the backs of the poor countries. So now, in order to bring about equality, what we have to do is to dethrone America. America owes the world. That's why when it comes to the Green New Deal, we're the ones who are investing in you know, uh, technology that supposedly is going to do away with all of the uh, gasoline and all of these things that cause the ozone. So the point to be made is what the Green New Deal wants to do is to use America to bring equity to the world. Mm. And of course, the Bible predicts the fact that there is going to be a one world government. I point out that there are those who want a borderless world. And we certainly see that in our southern border right now. There are those who are working towards a cryptocurrency, a digital currency, whereby all transactions will be monitored. And that's so simple to see today, given all of our technology. And uh, we're also working toward a situation in which there will be a collective government. You know, and Schwab, by the way, in his book, Says that when the next pandemic happens, there's going to be discussions regarding civil rights and individual freedoms, but because of fear, people will submit. They'll submit to the vaccine, they'll submit to whatever restrictions the World Economic Forum and the World uh, Forum regarding medicine, whatever it is people will submit to it. So what we must do is to recognize that this is happening, Mm. and we must determine now in our hearts that when it gets to that, we will not bow, we will not submit. Mm. It says in Revelation 13 that Antichrist is going to rule the world, but in Revelation 12, the preceding chapter, it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And we as Mm. Christians need to Learn what other saints have learned before us.
1: Mm, So good, brother. So good. And, you know, one thing that people may not be aware of is, and I've been telling people, you really want to stay up on what's happening. Go to the White House website on their briefing, because in May of this year, they had several countries, Germany and several others come in and they talked about the next, quote unquote, pandemic that's that's coming. And they even they even say that in the in the, on the White House website, and so just I've just been telling people you want to stay on what's happening in our in our culture, and in America, go they're telling you right on the White House website they are they are putting it out there and pay attention. So, but um, you know we're we're talking about all these things in our culture and and what to do about them, how to speak to them, and those things. Uh, what does faithfulness to Christ? Um, and suffering look like in our collapsing culture
2: well that's actually the last full chapter of my book i think we have to rethink our view of suffering you know we think to ourselves that if we are the people that we should be we should always have freedom we should also have always have prosperity it's not been the history of the world it's always been one of suffering it's always been one of christians being marginalized And uh, Jesus said this, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. So we need to think through clearly the fact that uh, we are being persecuted, not sent to jail yet, although we have some instances of that, but marginalized. Are you going to apply for a job in which it is necessary for you to bow before the rainbow flag. It may be a job of teaching chemistry in a university. It may be a job in business, but that's the requirement. Are you going to be willing to write a letter and confess and apologize for the color of your skin? If you say no, you could lose your job. A teacher here in the school system in Chicago said that he was told it is not enough for you to simply tolerate same-sex marriage. You must celebrate it or you will lose your job. So those are the kinds of decisions people are going to have to make. And we're going to have to recognize that we have to join the saints of the centuries and be willing to suffer for Christ.
1: Mm, That's really good. Good word. Well, you know, um, where can people go to find out more about you, either on your website? I know you uh, publish sermons as well and those things. Where can yeah. you go to find out that material?
2: They can go to MoodyMedia.org. MoodyMedia.org. And Dave, okay. if you could remind them of the title of the book, that actually they can go to Offer dot com. MCM actually stands for Moody Church Media. MCMOffer.com and ask for the book, which is entitled No Reason to Hide.
1: Mm. Well, just as we wrap up, brother, uh as I always say at the end, you know, there's a lot that we could talk about. And that's equally true with this this book and these topics that you address. But what would you what what final takeaways would you have for our listeners and those who watch this?
2: Well, I just want to end with the ending of my book. It's actually not even a chapter, it's sort of the epilogue. There is a story that David Bryan tells about being in the um the area of the gods. What what is that called in Colorado, you know? The um it, it, it has huge mountains, I mean, 60, 70 feet high. And uh, we've driven past it oftentimes when we are in Colorado, in the springs, the Colorado Springs. And um, there was a man who was taking his family and they were crawl, uh, walking, hiking to the top of one of these huge mountains, 60, 70 feet high. His daughter was following him, and suddenly she froze. And he gave her three instructions. And I want to apply those instructions to us in this culture. First of all, he said, don't look around. Now, my book emphasizes that we should look around, but the point that I'm making is this. We can get so caught up with the news and all of the hype of our culture that we lose our perspective. So he said, don't look around, look only at me and keep walking. And I say this, that um, let's look at the culture, but ultimately, not be so absorbed by it that we forget, we shouldn't spend all of our time listening to the news. Mm. We should look only to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, who suffered for us and he died on the cross. And then what we should do is also to keep walking. Keep being faithful wherever God has planted you. And even as I've talked here, Dave, I do remember that the point of the place in Colorado is called the Garden of the Gods. You can look it up online. You can see the beautiful formations that are there. And that's where that story happened. So don't become too absorbed by looking around. Look only to Christ and keep walking. That's my word.
1: Amen, brother. So good. Well, guys, we've been talking today with my brother, our brother in Christ, Erwin Lutzer. Uh, Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for your time. And guys, the book is uh, No Reason to Hide Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. Again, if you're looking at it, uh, watching the video, here it is. Uh, And it is so good. It's uh, truth with compassion, truth and love. And we we need uh we need this book we need the instruction in it we need to understand that uh the biblical worldview is under assault today so thank you dr luther for your time and for the excellent work that you've done in this book
2: thanks dave and god bless thank you